Good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Jake Patton. I'm one of the pastors here at Downtown Prez. That was Brian Habig, the boss, leading us in worship this morning. We're continuing our study in the Minor Prophets uh, together this morning. And we're going to be looking at the book of Habakkuk. So if you have your Bibles, uh, let's open to that passage and that book together. We looked at Jonah, Micah, and Nahum. And now we're to Habakkuk. It's a small book. It's a short book. If you can't find it and you know where Matthew is, just go backwards four books and that should get to where you need to go. But as we're getting settled, um, that's also printed for you uh, in your bulletin, so um, please consider that as well. Um, We've already joked as as a church, as as we've discussed the Minor Prophets, how oftentimes these are the cleanest pages in our Bible. Uh, One commentator calls the Minor Prophets the dark continent of the Scriptures. It's just because a lot of people don't go there. And one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why this may be the case is because it's so repetitive. Um, The Minor Prophets are so repetitive. You've got God who has this this oracle, um, this prophecy of, of woe or of judgment, and he gives it to a messenger, a prophet, and then this person in turn then delivers it to um, a nation, a people. Sometimes those people are believers, and sometimes they are not, like in the case of Edom and Nineveh. And so, you know, with repetition, we just kind of go, ah, you know, maybe I've heard that before. Um, but in the case of Habakkuk, um, here's one of its <clears throat> excuse me, unique features. It's missing one of the characters. It's got God, and he's got this prophecy. And it's got a messenger, Habakkuk, uh, the prophet. Uh, But there's no delivering of this message, at least in our text, to um, Judah, who is the southern kingdom, uh, the people of God. And instead, what we have is is this almost Job-like conversation, questions and answers between Habakkuk, the prophet, and God, who is his king. Um, Some backing and forthing, um, some dialogue. And we get to be a fly on the wall this morning. And, and, and interact with these questions and answers in this way. The theme this morning that we're discussing is something very, very pertinent to us. It's, it's suffering. It's pain. Um, it's experiencing the momentary displeasure of God through correction and through discipline. And Habakkuk asks very difficult questions. And what's beautiful about this passage is the Lord answers. And like I said, we get to be a fly on the wall. So let's Let's jump in. We're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 1 and read a few selections from these three chapters, but end in verse 19 of chapter 3. So if you would, let's follow along in the bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? A cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Chapter 2, verse 4, this is the Lord speaking first of Babylon and then of Judah. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. By his faith. Chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. 
O Lord, I have heard the report of You and Your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's pray together. O Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in Your sight. You, O Lord, who are our rock and our Redeemer. We pray and ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's a very odd practice. And when you consider it, it's in a lot of ways very, very counterintuitive. And some have attributed this practice to the early Japanese. They're the ones that came up with it. Others have said, no, 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 it was the early Native Americans. Uh, They're the ones who came up with it. Well, regardless of its origins, it's old. It's antiquated. And it's very odd. And here's the practice. Here's here's the problem. In an agricultural society, I mean, this is centuries and ages ago, um, if you had a fruit tree that in the spring would normally bear, bear flowers, which would then turn into fruit, which would then turn into a harvest uh, in the fall, sometimes fruit trees would just go to sleep. They would go dormant. And in one season, they would just be entirely fruitless. And when we have that problem in in modern days, we we have chemicals, we have fertilizers, we have accelerants, all kinds of things we can kind of throw at it. And if that doesn't work, you just go down to the plant nursery and buy another one, right? Right? People in cultures before us and the civilizations before us didn't have that luxury. Um, to tear down a, a fruit tree was to tear down their, their life source. And, and so what would they do when they had a, you know, a sleeping tree, a, a tree that wouldn't bear fruit? Here's the odd practice. They would take something akin to a, a two-by-four or, or a wooden bat, and with a certain amount of force, they would strike the trunk of the tree. Not so hard that it would kill it or knock it over, but just hard enough to where the bark was damaged and the layer underneath was damaged. And you would do this to, to you know, different sides of the tree. And, and here's, here's what's so amazing to us is, is it worked. And, um, and, and again, you already, you're beginning to feel the irony and the counterintuitive, counterintuitiveness of this, of this practice, right? Fruit comes from pain. 
Produce comes from scars and from wounds. That's what they've told us. And again, for reasons we don't understand, it it works. Pain bears fruit. In our passage this morning, we have a tree. It's sleeping. It's dormant. It's fruitless. Uh, And this tree is the southern kingdom, what we call Judah. And generation after generation, they have handed themselves over to idols, which are... Idols are things given by God that we turn into God. It's worshiping creation instead of the creator. Worshiping the gift, not the giver. We all struggle with it. They were struggling with it. And they're asleep. They're bearing no fruit. They're exercising no faith. In our story, we have a two-by-four. We have something that's going to strike the trunk of this tree with great force. And it's going to do harm. It's going to sting. And that two-by-four is the kingdom of Babylon. When you read later in some of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, this kingdom is mentioned a number of times uh, in these other prophets. The story of Daniel, uh, the context is Babylon. Um, And then the real question for us, and, and we're already asking ourselves, and in some ways we already know the answer is, who's holding the two-by-four? And with no shortage uh, of words, um, the Lord reveals this to Habakkuk. He says, I'm holding the two-by-four. In other words, in, in, in my perfect wrath and justice, I'm using this foreign nation, and they're going to strike you. For what purpose? Right? For what purpose? Why would the Lord do this? And He says, He tells us in chapter 2, verse 4, look back at the passage. The Lord is responding to Habakkuk. He says, in regards to Babylon, behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But you, Judah, you people of God, in the midst of my discipline, in the midst of my correction, you are to live by faith. And this is faith that's going to produce fruit. And so we're invited this morning to see the Lord's discipline in this way the Lord's correction, although sometimes severe, it's a means. It's meant to produce something. And what the Lord tells us is it's it's meant to produce faith. It's meant to produce fruit. But regardless of of God's intent, sometimes we don't take it that way, do we? Like Habakkuk, we we begin to answer, answer questions, or ask questions to God like, especially when we're experiencing His disfavor. His correction, His discipline. We ask things like He does, like, like where, where are you? And what are you doing? And without actually using these words, Habakkuk asks God, are we now enemies? And have you abandoned us altogether? What about the covenants? What about the promises? Are we now enemies with you? And again, the Lord says, no, discipline is is a means. It's meant to produce faith. And and like Habakkuk, sometimes when we experience the Lord's discipline, we we think it's an end. It feels like an end. It feels like the Lord is done with us. It feels in the moment like the Lord has abandoned us. It feels in the moment like, like He has forgotten His covenant and His promises to make our enemies His enemies. And through Habakkuk, the Lord says, no, 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 discipline is not an end. It's a means. It's meant to produce something. 
It's meant to produce faith. And so I want to ask that question this morning is what does faith look like? And but more specifically, we're in the context of a severe correction, severe discipline of the Lord. What does it look like to exercise faith? When the rubber meets the road, what does it look like to embody faith when you're in an extended period of grief, when you're suffering? Discipline and correction are a form of suffering. They're not the only form of suffering, but they are a type of suffering. What does faith look like when you're being corrected by God, when you're staring down the barrel of this, of this two-by-four? Um, three things I want to look at this morning um, in regards to faith. Uh, faith recalls, faith asks, and faith waits. There's faith in recalling, there's faith in asking, and there's faith in waiting. Well, what does it look like to have a faith that recalls, to have a faith that remembers? Let's consider this first. We're on the eve of football season. And so we're somewhere between 40 and 45 days out from the first kickoff. And for some of us, we just, that's too much time. We can't wait. And even some of you have, have, have posted on Facebook or other social media highlight videos, right? These are videos where, you know, we take plays and clips from last season, you know, all the good, none of the bad, none of the fumbles, none of the interceptions, like all the good stuff, Right? And for the really, really good plays, we slow it down. We put it in slow motion. And for the awesome plays, like we put it on a loop or repeat it a couple times, and there's like Van Halen in the background, right? What are these videos meant to do for us as football fans, right? We look at these highlights and we go, okay, we're not a total lost cause. Some good things happened last year. Maybe this year. Maybe this year there's hope. If we play like this, if we do this, maybe we could take it all the way, Right? So what are these highlight videos meant to do? It's meant to promote and excel hope and faith in something. And Habakkuk in our passage does the exact same thing, except not with football. He does it with the Lord. Remember, he's in the context of correction and discipline. And his instinct is to remember. It's to recall. It's to consider the Lord's highlight video and go, what do we find when we consider the Lord? Again, look with me again at verse 2 in chapter 3. He says, Lord... I've heard the report of you and your work. And for the next 12 to 13 verses, he basically, in a very poetic way, goes back through the Old Testament and kind of tips his hat and kind of points at Old Testament stories, ones we know very well. There's a number of them here, and if you have time this week, kind of bathe in, in chapter 3 and, and see how many references you can pick up from Habakkuk. But let me just mention one uh, for our discussion this morning. Look at, uh, look at verse 15. Very short. It says, You've trampled the sea with your horses. This is chapter 3, 15. You've trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. What is that a reference to? What is he talking about? Again, very poetically. It's the Exodus. And Exodus, yes, is, is a book in the Old Testament, but, it, but it's a story. And if you don't know what that story is, imagine you've been a captive people. You're the Israelites. You're the people of God, and you've been in captivity for hundreds of years. And um, this captive nation, Egypt, has let you go free. Uh, but then they change their mind. And they are coming after you. And they have one thing on their mind, and that is your utter destruction. And Moses and the people of God come to the Red Sea, and so they are literally stuck between a rock and a hard place. They've got Egypt behind them with death on their mind, and they've got water in front of them. And in God's power and in His majesty, He does something wonderful. 
He parts the Red Sea. He dries the ground. And they walk through, God's people, they walk through the Red Sea. And what the account tells us is that the Egyptians, seeing this miracle one or two, they, they, they follow after him. And then the second, the last person, the last Israelite is through the Red Sea. And they're on the other side and they're safe. The Lord snaps his finger. What happens to the waters? The waters close. And at the bottom of the Red Sea, there are chariots and there are horses. There's this mighty Egyptian army devastated in one foul swoop. And here Habakkuk references this story among among many others. Um, But to what extent, to what point? If you're an Egyptian and you're looking at this story, you see God as a God who judges a God whose wrath is severe, a God you don't want to mess with. But if you're Israel and you're looking at the story, what do you see? You're seeing a God who is loving and who is kind and who's a rescuing God, who's a freeing God, who's eager to show mercy. And so what is is Habakkuk getting at here? He's saying, look, when I consider God, when I consider your works and, and your might, on one hand, and at the same time, you are perfect in your power, perfect in your wrath, perfect in your judgment. But at the same time, you're also perfect in your mercy and perfect in your kindness. You see both perfectly here in this one story and at the same time. And so the question for us this morning then is, is how does this help you and how does this help me? How did it help Habakkuk? Remember, Habakkuk here, he, he fears the worst, that God has abandoned him that the Lord has forgotten his covenant with Judah. And so what does he do? He recalls, he remembers, he starts going through the highlight video, and what does he see? He's saying, yes, God is full of wrath. He's perfect in his justice, but he's also merciful. In other words, when I'm looking at at my dire circumstances, and when when I'm experiencing the displeasure of the Lord, he has never, in the history of the Scriptures, forgotten mercy forgotten his covenant, nor abandoned his people. He has always been faithful. And if we're honest, what's the first thing we forget? Not remember, what's the first thing we forget when we're under discipline and when we suffer? The first thing we remember is, well, the Lord is just and he's full of wrath. But what do we forget? We also forget, but yes, but it's coupled with perfect mercy and perfect kindness. He will not forget us. Though the pain be severe and very acute, He's never forgotten His people. And what we learn is that, yes, Babylon, just like Nineveh, is judged for their wickedness. And they, like Nineveh, go away. And God's people are freed. But it's hard to remember that in suffering, is it not? There's faith in recalling. There's faith in remembering. But there's also faith in asking and making requests before the Lord. Um, Have you ever heard someone ask a question and it wasn't really a question. It was more of a statement. There was a a, a dash of cynicism and like a subtle jab in the question. It wasn't really a question. It was more of a statement. Um, Leaving the Old Testament for a moment, let's consider um, a a story in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1. We have three characters. We have Mary, we have Elizabeth, and we have Zachariah. Mary and Elizabeth are cousins. And Elizabeth and Zechariah are husband and wife. And to these three people, God sends an angel. And this angel says almost the exact same thing 
to all of these three people separately, not at the same time, but separately, what does he say? He says, Mary, Elizabeth, Zachariah, you're going to have a family. You're going to have a child. Almost word for word, the angel says the exact same thing to Mary, to Elizabeth, and to Zechariah, all separately. Then, their responses are almost exactly the same. Again, almost word for word, they respond the same way. They respond with a question. They ask the angel this, how could this be? How in the world could this happen? And, and Mary asks this, why? Because she's not married yet. She hasn't been with a man. She's going, how can this happen? Elizabeth says, I- I'm barren. Zechariah says, we're too old. How could this be? But here's the twist. Only one of these three is disciplined. Only one of the three is disciplined, and that's Zechariah. And the angel says, because in your heart of hearts, you did not believe that the Lord would be kind to you and would bless you. And for nine months, he's deaf and he's mute and he can't speak. Why not Mary? Why not Elizabeth? Because in their asking, it was a question of faith like, how wonderful is this? How could this be? And they sing songs of joy. And they treasure these things up in their heart. But that's not how Zechariah responded. And so when we consider asking this morning, there's an asking that's not really an asking. There's an asking that is um, full of despair, and full of cynicism, but then there's an asking that's full of faith. And Habakkuk's going to embody this for us. Here's what he asks for. Look again at the beginning of, of, of verse 2. He says, he says, revive and make known your work. And the question is, is, is well, what is this work? Again, what has Habakkuk remembered? What has he recalled? That on one hand, God is perfect in his justice, but he's also perfect in his mercy. The end of verse 2 here, he says, Very simply, this very short but beautiful prayer. In wrath, remember mercy. In other words, do now what you've done all through time. Treat us as you've treated the people of God since Genesis. Be perfect in your wrath, but also be perfect in your mercy. And only the way that you can. And what Habakkuk here is doing for us this morning, he's embodying not just prayer, but the posture of prayer. And I would even go so far as to say, when we think about making requests before the Lord, we need to have our own version of of Habakkuk's prayer. And it it can sound differently, but it's got to capture the same thing. Something along these lines, though Lord, you owe us nothing. You're not our debtor. We don't have you over a barrel. Though you owe us nothing except wrath and judgment, because of what you've done to Israel, because of what you've done to Habakkuk, because of what you've done with the people of God, because you've been merciful to them, will you be merciful to me? And then fill in the blank with the request. Though I don't deserve it, would you have mercy? In some ways, what Habakkuk here is doing, he's embodying the Old Testament version of the tax collector's prayer in the Gospels. Remember, in guilt and in shame, he stands outside the temple. He can't bring himself to go in. And he's beating his chest. And what is he saying? Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. On one hand, you're the God of perfect wrath. And I deserve it. But what I've seen from history and what I've recalled is that you're also perfect in mercy. May I have it? Although I don't deserve it. 
Are you still in the business of giving people what they don't deserve? And if so, would you be merciful to me? That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's to ask for mercy. It's not entitlement. It's, the, it's quite the opposite. Real faith remembers. It recalls. It asks. But it also waits. Um, a while back, I played a board game with my family called Moods. M-O-O-D-S. Moods. And it's not a very popular one and it's not the high, you know, at the top of the list and, you know, board games, favorite board games throughout history, but <clears throat> for the sake of conversation, here's the premise. Two teams, and there's a stack of cards, and on these cards, there is a mood, an emotion, a state of being like anger or sadness. And what you had to do is if when you drew this card, you had to get your team to say and identify this mood this emotion. But here's the catch. You couldn't use any noise and you couldn't use any words. All you had to use were your facial features. So actors had, you know, uh, an advantage uh, in this game. But you could also gesture. Okay, but, but, but no noise. No, no words. And so, you know, for example, if you drew the card pain, you would, you know, furrow your brow. Um, or if, if it was, um, you know, uh, a suffering or, or, or a sadness, you know, you ha- you'd have a frown on your face. Well, let's, let's pretend for a moment that we're playing that game, and it's your turn to act it out. And when you flip up the card, the card says waiting. How would you portray that emotion? How would you portray that with your facial features or with your gestures, waiting? Automatically, our mind kind of goes negative, doesn't it? I cheated, and I typed this into Google Images, right? And I typed in waiting, and here's what popped up. It was, you know, the fingers on the desktop. The brr, brr, brr. Um, it, was, it was a number of, you know, faces buried in their hands. There was one of a park bench with a skeleton on it. It was waiting. And when we think about waiting, we automatically associate it with, with, with negativity, like, like pain and suffering. And indeed, there, that, is, that is true, but is that all there is? Is that what we're supposed to do when we experience um, the dire circumstances? Um, God's two-by-four, His correction, His discipline. It doesn't have to look that way. There can be joy, there can be faith in the waiting. And the question is, okay, well, how do we, how do, we do that? Explain it, illustrate it. Habakkuk's going to do that for us. Uh, and he does it through a lament. And we say, okay, what is... What is a lament? Uh, a lament is a public acknowledgement of pain, of suffering, of hardship, not just to our fellow man, but also to God. Look with me at verse 17, chapter 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. He doesn't downplay it here, does he? In an agricultural society, what Habakkuk is getting at here is, man, things are going to get real bad. And the Lord is sending it. And this is, this is a part of the Lord's discipline, and it's meant to produce faith. It's going to get very, very difficult. And, and again, notice, too, that this wasn't just given to Judah. 
given to the southern kingdom. This was sung. This prayer was put to a tune. And so it's almost as if this, this page from Habakkuk's journal goes public. And he acknowledges the hardships that are coming down the pipe. And we say, well, pastor, isn't that really what complaining is? Like verbalizing hardship, right? Saying out loud, this is going to be terrible. This is going to be hard. What's the difference between complaining and a genuine lament? Well, typically with a complaint, we stop at an airing of the grievance. And we may not shake our fist at God or shake our fist to other people, but when we complain, that's what we're doing. We're saying, I'm owed more. I deserve more. And that's not where Habakkuk's going with this. He says, things are going to get tough. Everybody, sing this with me. Things are going to get very hard. And this is what turns a complaint into a lament. It's, it, it's, it's taking these, these dire circumstances and it's weighing them against, against something else. And we might think, well, yeah, we do that too. Let's weigh it against uh, future circumstances. And that helps for a while. Or let's just, just kind of sweep it under the rug. Let's not even talk about it. But that only leads to despair. What does Habakkuk compare and weigh his suffering to? It's not a thing. It's not a future blessing. It's a person. Did you see it? Look again at verse 18. Notice the transition from his present circumstances to what? He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He doesn't stop at the airing of grievances. What does he do? When you you look at the suffering, especially the one that Habakkuk and Judah were going to go through at the hands of Babylon as a means of God's correction to produce faith in Judah, and we were to put this on a scale the scale goes katunk in favor of suffering, in favor of despair. But do you see what Habakkuk's doing here? He says, but no, I'm not going to stop at an airing of grievances. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord in a person. The scale starts to tip. I'm going to consider the Lord. I'm going to remember. I'm going to recall. I'm going to preach the gospel to myself. I've been listening to myself for far too long. Remember, O soul, that though he is perfect in his wrath and his judgment, he's also perfect in his mercy. He's going to be kind. Starting to level out. But what happens when you get the Lord? As sons and daughters, you get his benefits. And Habakkuk here highlights too. He says, when you get the Lord, you get strength. And what is it that we need? We're having to endure trials and we're enduring suffering. And, and when we're starting to hear these voices and these questions in our head, boy, it feels like God is abandoning us. What do we need? Do we not need strength? And that's what the Habakkuk says here in verse 18. He says, the Lord is my strength. He will make your feet and my feet like the deer. He will take us into high places. He will give us exactly what we need. But he doesn't stop there. He also says, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And we think, okay, well, there's the future, the future blessing. Salvation, that's what's coming down the road. But here's the good news. If you're a son or daughter of the Most High, what that means is that you are His son and His daughter, not then, but now. In this life, and in their case, in the midst of great suffering, and in the midst of great discipline. And there is nothing Babylon, there is nothing Assyria, there is nothing that the evil one himself can do to pluck you from His grasp. 
He will save you and He has saved you. And you are saved by Him. And you see what's happening? Is the scale is starting to level out. And, and unless we think that, that God's mercy matches our suffering, notice what He says. He says, the joy of my salvation. I will rejoice in my God. Not I will endure. I will hang tough. I'll just keep my nose above water. What does He say? Even in the midst of great suffering, great correction, because of the Lord, we can rejoice and have joy. Faith recalls the Lord. Faith asks in mercy and in justice. Real faith laments. A writer says this about a genuine and a true lament. He says, you know you've lamented properly if your lament looks more like a love song. He says a lament at at, at its core, a true lament is not an airing of a grievance. A true lament is a love song. You see what Habakkuk's doing here? He's preaching to himself. He's remembering the Lord. He's asking for the right things for the right reasons. The good news always outweighs the bad in God's kingdom. I want to close with this and and consider one last time Habakkuk's request. Again, a small, short, but very beautiful prayer. Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. And if you want like a snapshot, if you want a glimpse of perfect wrath coupled with perfect mercy and grace, look at Habakkuk. Look at his story. Look at his context. Look at this period in history. If you want a panoramic of God's perfect wrath and God's perfect mercy, a wider view, look at the Old Testament. They're both there. But I want to suggest this to you this morning. If you want the 3D, IMAX, THX version of God's justice, His perfect wrath, coupled and at the same time and at the same moment, coupled with His perfect mercy and kindness, don't look to Habakkuk, although it's there. A glimpse of it is there. Don't look to the Old Testament. Yes, there's a panoramic of it there. Look no further than Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? I say that because Jesus said that. He did a couple things that in the life of the disciples and in the Gospels, they weren't really sure what He was doing. It didn't make sense to them. They were confused. But now 2,000 years later, as, as we have more scholarship, we're looking back on and we're connecting the dots going, oh wow, do you see this? There's so many stories, but there's one story. And there's this one golden thread that runs through the entire Scriptures. And here's what Jesus has, has said to His disciples and to His hearers. He said things like this. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, He began interpreting you know, Moses, which was the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch and the prophets concerning himself. In other words, when we talk about Moses in, in, in those first five books, when we talk about the prophets, conversation always came back to Jesus. He did that. He would say this later in Luke. Everything that's written in Moses, in the Pentateuch, everything that's written in the prophets, minor and major, even everything in the Psalms must be fulfilled through me. Meaning what? 
As awesome as the story of Habakkuk is, as awesome as the story of the Exodus is, Moses, the prophets, the Psalms are primarily and ultimately about one person, Jesus Christ. Everything points back to Him. That's not us being creative. That's divine design in the Scriptures. He said it. We believe it. I want to think about one moment in Jesus' life in particular. It's a moment we all know. Um, It's His death on the cross. It's Calvary. It's His sacrifice for the people. And again, I suggest this. If you want the best image, the most powerful image, 3D, IMAX, THX, so profound it'll give you whiplash, look at Jesus. Because what do we see? We see a man being bruised, beaten, scourged, and crucified, and we just go, why on the earth would you do that to a good man? A man who was bearing fruit. A man who was not dead or asleep. A man who was perfect and holy. Very fruitful in his faith and in his work. That's because Jesus offered himself. He said, there is a wrath that you need to fear more than the Babylonians. There's a wrath you need to fear more than the Assyrians. And it's the wrath of God. And we all show up dead. We don't all show up bearing fruit. We all show up dead and fruitless. And what Jesus says is, Habakkuk, what you fear most about God and His discipline, where your imagination has led you, I'm actually going to experience that. You feel like in discipline God is abandoning you. No, He's going to abandon me. And we might be thinking, wow, you know, Jesus is going to take the two by four for us here in the story. And that couldn't be further from the truth. He doesn't take the two by four. He takes the axe. And he is uprooted. And his body is destroyed. His lungs stop functioning. The blood stops coursing through his veins. And what do we celebrate about that moment in history? If I can even use that word celebrate. It's this, is that for wickedness past, for wickedness present, and for your and my wickedness future, God is pouring out all of his pent-up wrath and anger and judgment on one person at one time, unbridled, unfettered, all at once, at one moment. Abandonment. Final judgment. What Habakkuk feared the most. Perfect justice. Perfect wrath. Unleashed on one person at one moment in history. And we say, to what end? To this end. Jesus says willingly, there's nothing that you can do as a dead tree, a fruitless tree, that bring yourself back into fellowship with the Father. You need to be grafted back in. So I'm going to take the wrath that you deserve, all of it, not part of it, not a majority of it, not the lion's share, all of it. Why? So that you might experience the perfect mercy of the Father. Though you are born an alien and though you are born an enemy of God, you get to be a son and daughter. And like a parent at a birthday party, you, you take this, this, this barrel of blessing and you pour it on your children. You give them the forgiveness of sins. You give them eternal life. You give them salvation. You give them joy. You give them strength. Not just then, but in the here and in the now. You get to the Father. You get perfect mercy. Not partial mercy. Not half mercy, half judgment. You get everything up front. You are heir to the universe. And we say, how could we turn that down? 
But like Habakkuk, we need to pray and we also need to embody, Lord, though you are perfect in wrath, have mercy on me. Jesus says, if you come to me and you ask me for mercy, you will have it. And you will enjoy my kingdom, my strength, and my joy, not just then, but in the here and in the now. As hard as life may get, yes, we will still experience the two-by-four of His discipline, His correction, but because of Jesus Christ, you will never experience the edge of the Father's acts. Jesus took care of that. Why? So that through faith in Jesus, you might bear much fruit for His glory and for His kingdom. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. O Spirit, protect us um, at this very moment in this minute um, from thinking we can walk away from this and in our own strength and our own efforts exercise faith to remember You to ask the right things for the right reasons of you, to wait patiently. Spirit, truly strengthen us. Be merciful to us and give us what you require of us, which is faith and hope and belief in you. Renew us. Revive us. Help us to fear you in a fatherly way. But help us to celebrate and find great joy in you because you've given us mercy and kindness which is undeserved. Make it so. Make it our reality. May we speak of this saving love and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit both now and forevermore. Amen. Come now to our...